Blog Talk Radio.
But up ahead is your signpost to cleaner water, the Bright Tap Chicken Waterer. The Bright Tap Waterer is fully covered. Chickens drink from special valves, so dirt and droppings can't get into the water. Chickens get sparkling clean water. You get less work. No poop-filled water pans for you to touch or wash out. Bright Tap, clean water made simple. Visit chickenwaterer.com to learn more. That's chickenwaterer.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Are you in the market for a new chicken coop? Want one that will outlast all the others? Then check out Urban Coop Company. All of their coops are made from 100% appearance-grade western red cedar with galvanized hardware and advanced all-weather joinery right here in the USA. Compared to other coops, Urban Coop Company coops will last longer and look better doing it. They're designed to be both beautiful and functional. In fact, they have earned the Chicken Whisperer seal of approval and are Chicken Whisperer approved. I invite you to browse their website to learn more about the many features of their coops and check out their integrated coop accessories that will make your life easier. Urban Coop Company is a family-owned business located in Dripping Springs, Texas, USA. They are passionate about building great coops because they know you're passionate about your backyard chickens. Visit them online at urbancoopcompany.com. That's urbancoopcompany.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken.
Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. I apologize for that technical delay. Um, I went to play a, uh, an ad, and it just uh, it kept spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and would not play. Uh, so I had to go to another one, and it started spinning and wouldn't play for some reason. So, But we got through it. No worries. Just a, uh, I don't know, what, 20 seconds of 30 seconds of dead air time? Hey, what are you going to do? It's a live radio, and you got to roll with the punches. So uh, no worries there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we do have a great show. Dr. McRae um, will be joining us here uh, shortly. Just want to send a real quick shout-out, and we'll get on with the show, to all the homeschoolers that listen to the show on a regular basis. Thank you very much. We enjoy uh, having our show incorporated in your daily curriculum. We do appreciate you tuning in. All the over-the-road truck drivers we hear from, tis the season, it's holiday season. Hope you get home to uh, your families, uh, keep the rubber on the road, and get that freight uh, to, uh, to the destination safely. Um, everybody that listens to the archive show on iTunes.com, podcast.com, Zoom.com, thank you very much. There's thousands of you, and we do appreciate you, even though you cannot uh, partake in listening live because of your uh, work schedules. And then, of course, uh, all of the retail stores around the country uh, that stream this radio show live for their customers during the day, we thank you very much. We wish you a very merry Christmas and holiday season this year. Already, let's go ahead and bring on Dr. McCray. Let's give her a big chicken whisper welcome. Hey, Doc, how you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm doing well, doing very well. This this may be, um, uh, I can't say the last show of, of the year. We may ha- have a show on Monday with Peter Brown, uh, the chicken doctor, and may- maybe one or two between Christmas and New Year's. But we really like to give our, our long-time fans and listeners a break and let them spend some time with their family. But at the same time, there may be folks that have some time off during the holidays that may be able to listen live that don't listen that normally listen to the to the podcast. So that's one of those things. We'll just see if we can uh, hit and miss some shows over the next uh, couple of weeks. But uh, it is the season. We're looking forward to 2015 and a great year there. But we're so glad you could be on today. We've got really some great questions that people have posted, uh, both on my uh, Facebook fan page and another fan page that I've been um, uh, associated with and I guess I've uh, belonged to uh, on Facebook. It's uh, I have to go and find it here in a second. But um, we're going to kick this off here. First off, do you have any announcements or any type of events you'd like to share with all of our listeners? Well, in the beginning of January, every year we have an event called Ag Week. It's Delaware Ag Week. And the Wednesday of Delaware Ag Week, we always have on Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. a free seminar. So if anybody's interested on Delmarva, come down and see us on Wednesday, January 14th at the Delaware State Fairgrounds. And there's only one set of fairgrounds in Delaware, so you got to go there. And we're going to be in the uh, exhibit hall boardroom. And you can, you can come learn about the realities of raising poultry on pasture, nutrition of poultry on pasture, medicated chick starter, which you need to know. And I'm going to be doing my survey again on why people like to keep chickens. Great. And that's at the fairgrounds there. Yes in the exhibit hall boardroom from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on January 14th. I hope folks can come join us. Yeah, that would be awesome. And do you have, uh, is it still preliminary for dates and times of uh, Cooptastic? Yeah, we're still looking at March 7th for Cooptastic. We're still working on the details and everything, but um, when I get an agenda out there, I'll, I'll pass it along. 
Perfect. Very good. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and get uh, ready with our program. If you're a first-time listener, thank you very much for tuning in. You may want to grab a pen and paper to take some notes, but as a reminder, this show is archived for your listening pleasure 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So at any time, if you miss something, want to come back and hear something again, it will be archived uh, for you. Okay, let me see where this... um, question is. I really enjoyed it. We're going to start off with this one from from Emily. I don't think we've ever had this question in the, um, I guess, six years that we've been broadcasting this uh, show and podcast, so we'll start this one to start the show. I think it's very interesting. Emily uh, has a question. We have hosted a big eggnog party the last couple of years with great success. But how can I feel confident that we won't give our 50 or so guests salmonella in the future? So she's obviously making eggnog with with raw eggs, maybe from her backyard. Uh, I don't have any information whether these are store-bought eggs or eggs from her backyard or from friends or neighbors or farms. Uh, But that is her, her question. Is there a way for her to be confident that, she won't be serving a nice dose of salmonella with her eggnog. Right. Well, of course, just in case some of your listeners are um, from overseas or just not familiar with eggnog, it's a beverage usually served around the holidays. It's eggs, milk, sugar, and usually some sort of flavoring, uh, whether they're spices or um, like vanilla extract. It depends on your recipe as to what flavorings are used. And um, if you're not a if if you want a little bit richer form of that, you can replace part or all of the milk with cream. Um, occasionally, uh, spirits are added at the holidays. So depending on what recipe you're using, or if you're going to have children there or not, people can either add their own spirits to a, a cup of eggnog or. Um, it may be already mixed in and perhaps you have a separate batch that only the kids have access to that doesn't have any spirits in it. Um, So the big concern here is, all right, am I potentially making people sick? If you're using raw eggs, yes, potentially you could be making people sick. And since we don't know the story behind the source of the eggs, um, whether they are pasteurized eggs, eggs from the grocery store, eggs from their own small flock, we, we're we going to be talking about the safest way to make eggnog. And Andy, do you know why it's called nog or eggnog? I have no idea, Doc. You have no idea. Okay. Well, it's named after the small cup, which is called a noggin in which eggnog was served in ye oldie days. There you go. That's what a nog is. It's served nog. in a noggin. <laughs> All right. So if the safest way to do this for folks is to basically make a stirred custard, which, yes, does use um, does use eggs. And you can still serve it hot or cold, but uh, preparing the dish you're going to want to go the route of a a stirred custard. Now, there are baked custards and there are stirred custards. Stirred custards are often called a soft custard, custard sauce, or some people call it a boiled custard, but that's an erroneous name because you're not actually 
it's not exactly boiled. What you're going to do is you're going to take your recipe, and I'm going to go through the recipe in just a moment, in case some of your listeners are thinking about, hmm, maybe they're going to try something new this year with their eggs. (laughs) What you need to do is cook your custard on the top of a a stove or range um, until it's creamy but pourable. That's the consistency we're looking for. Um, You can use a double boiler, but you can also pull this off in just a heavy saucepan using low heat. Um, You can also use a a stirred custard in a pudding or serve it over cake or fruit. So it's a very flexible dish. So if you go with this recipe that I'm about to go through and describe, uh, you will understand that um, it makes about three and a half cups. For this recipe, you can use four eggs or eight egg yolks, half a cup of sugar, quarter teaspoon of salt, two and a half cups of milk, one and a half teaspoons of vanilla. In a large saucepan, you're going to beat together your eggs, sugar, and salt. Stir in your milk and cook it over low heat. And you're going to constantly stir it until the mixture is thick. And what you're going to use is a metal spoon, and when you lift it up, if it's thick enough to coat a metal spoon with a thin film, then you're there. I like to use a thermometer. I like it to read 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And it takes me uh, 15, 20 minutes to get there. After that, I take it off the heat, stir in the vanilla, and if I'm going to serve it hot, I can go straight there. I usually serve cold eggnog, and I'll set it in a pan of um, ice water and keep stirring a little bit. Um, If you overcook it, you're going to cause the custard to curdle. So if you're going to chill it, chill it thoroughly. Why serve this as a stirred or cooked custard? Well, when we talk about um, food safety and raw eggs, one of the things we are concerned about is the danger zone. The danger zone is when um, raw products, raw um, animals and undercooked animal foods are held between 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the danger zone. So that's why you cook this until it's above 160 degrees Fahrenheit. But then again, if you're going to serve it cold, get that temperature down to refrigerator temperatures as fast as possible. That's why you use the ice bath. So um, that's why, you know, we're worried about salmonella. Yes, there is a chance that backyard flocks could carry salmonella unless you test regularly. And I don't mean once every five years. I mean annually, if not more often, Um, because salmonella could be there. And if you have family coming to visit, as many of us are going to visit family or have family visiting us at the holidays, there's a variety of age groups, um, health levels. You've got young people. You've got pregnant people. You have people with medical problems, impaired immune systems. And you don't want to serve something that could cause food poisoning. And with those more susceptible individuals, you're really going to want to um, perhaps err on the side of caution because, you know, if you have a big party, you don't know everyone's health status. That's something to consider. Like I said, cook it to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, then you should be, 
you should be well on your way to uh, creating a safe product for everyone to enjoy. Now, I know that there are articles out there that say, oh, don't worry about it, you've got alcohol in there. If you have at least 20% alcohol, that's going to kill any bacteria. Yeah, you might believe that, but it's not consistent. You have uh-huh. to have, you have to, um, you actually have to age the product. And I'm actually looking into um, the journal article for that, trying to find the actual journal article for that research. Um, I suspect it was informal research, but like I said, I've made inquiries into the authors and I haven't heard back yet. So um, okay. until I hear uh- otherwise. We're going to go with erring on the side of caution for the sake of people's health. Um, It is not a certainty that by adding alcohol to your mixture, you're going to kill bacteria. Okay? We know heat does. Yes. Question for you. I um, understand that some people have availability in the grocery stores to purchase pasteurized eggs. Um, I've never seen them in the stores. I guess I've never looked. But apparently you can purchase at the store pasteurized eggs. If you, you if you have a recipe that doesn't, uh, w- w- I guess that's that's my question. If you chose, if you were making the eggnog, you weren't going to cook it up to the, or heat it up to 160 um, uh, uh, pasteurized eggs, would that be a uh, possible uh, substitute, I mean, or, or if you're going to knowingly make I'm not comfortable you, without doing the research myself. I'm not comfortable saying that that's your safest bet. Okay. I would have to look into that further. I'm going to err on the okay. side of caution and say, you know, heat it up. Um, heat it up. Why not? <clears throat> make Why not? a wonderful Very thick consi- consistency, at least that I enjoy as a stirred Perfect. custard consistency. Very good. Hopefully that's, uh, uh, again, what uh, what our listener is uh, looking for. Perfect. We'll go to uh, the next question here on the, uh, the Chicken Whisper page. Then I'm going to head over to the um, uh, poultry um, um, science and, and, and animal uh, science page and, uh, and get a couple from over there on that Facebook page. But uh, uh, Bobby wants to know, what's the best method for candling eggs? Well, the stronger the light source you have, the clearer you're going to have as an image. Um, there are several <clears throat> candlers out there. <coughs> At my university, we use a, a candler called the Speed King. <coughs> Excuse me, just a second here. And that candler provides a nice strong light that allows us to see the contents of the egg, whether we're candling them for chicks, for embryo development, or if we're candling them for grading purposes. You can make your own candler, and if you're just a teacher um, or or hobbyist doing this um, on very small scale and don't want to invest in a nice candler that um, is is going to get a lot of mileage out of it for, like, say, 30, 40 years, um, then you can just use a, a a flashlight with a good, strong, fresh bulb and fresh batteries. You can put a piece of cardboard over the front of the flashlight and put in something that's like a nickel-sized hole in that cardboard. Turn the light on and uh, take a look at your take a look at your eggs that way. Um, there are handheld candlers out there where I've had some mixed results, 
And your best results are going to be with a lighter colored eggshell. If you're working with darker colored eggshells, say blue-green or brown even, even if it's a light brown, you want a stronger, more professional light to make your life a little bit easier, especially if this is your... Um, if this is your enterprise that we're talking about, or if you're going to be doing a lot of this, make yourself make it as easy on yourself as possible. So there are options out there. You can build your own candler using um, a, a box or container of some sort, and uh, make sure it's well ventilated because light bulbs produce heat, and uh, you don't want to catch your box on fire. <laughs> But um, you want the light to come out of a hole on the side with ventilation out of the top for for um, candling. And you can use just about any kind of light socket that you can buy at Lowe's and just screw in a new light bulb and go for it. Perfect. And I know that um, there's some uh, really cool... Um, and, and very good uh, candlers uh, at Brincy. Brincy makes some really neat ones. Uh, of course, you can use even something as simple as a mag light up to you know the egg things in, 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 a, in, a, in a pinch. Um, I know mm-hmm. GQF has one. GQF has one that's been out for years and years and years. But I know Brincy has one some that are kind of just a little bit fancier for your taste, but they do cost a little bit more. So those are some that people may be able to uh, look at and, and purchase. So thank you very much for that. And if you're having a hard time, if you're if you're working on breed development or you're trying to candle darker shelled eggs, once you've got the money saved up to invest in a higher quality candler, it's an awesome experience. Cool. Okay, we have uh, Roosty from over. There's a there's a page that uh, I found not too long ago uh, on Facebook titled Science Based Poultry and Livestock, and um, it's uh, just again it's kind of what we uh, strive to do here. And in our magazine is a uh, you know science-based, fact-based, study-based information, and we'll go here with this uh, first question here. First, let me say because your question is about mycoplasma. There is a very good article uh, by Dr. Petisky from UC Davis in the um, uh, I think it's the Winter Issue uh, that just came out uh, all about mycoplasma. Very very good uh, information about that. I'll post that over there in this uh, thread. Uh, about this since you asked that, but she wants to know, uh, why is mycoplasma resistant to antibiotic treatment when it is, in fact, a bacterial infection? My my understanding it, was there's no cell wall with mycoplasma. It, yeah, it's got, it's a, it's a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Microbiologically speaking, it is, it, it's really kind of clever as far as the bacteria. It's got a funky cell wall. It sits somewhere in between being like a gram-positive and a gram-negative bacteria. It's a slow grower when you're trying to culture it in the lab. And um, so it's it's a survivor. So why doesn't, why doesn't um, an antibiotic work on it? Well, there are some antibiotics that do work on it. Um, but you know, just with any sort of medication, you have to follow the recommended course of treatment so that you don't end up with resistance. And unfortunately, out there in the poultry world, there are some people who just guess at what their problem is, and they may have developed resistance in their flocks because they didn't 
they didn't get an they didn't do a diagnosis they didn't follow an appropriate course of treatment for their particular problem and yes you can get resistance so some antibiotics focus on breaking down the cell wall um, I'm not saying that is what happens with the antibiotics that work with mycoplasma because that's that's more detailed than I carry within my hot little head um, as to the mode of action for the um, the antibiotics that work against mycoplasma. But some antibiotics try to poke holes in the bacteria. Some antibiotics um, stop the bacteria from from being able to do certain cellular functions. And um, so that can be what is going on in your flock or what you have read about mycoplasma because, you know, since it's got a really unique cell wall, it's taking on some some unique attributes from both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. Andy, are you there? Sorry, I was on, I had put myself on mute there, <laughs> okay. and I'll tell you why I put myself on mute. It's kind of funny. Um, we are in the uh, RV as we do is when we travel around the country, and we're at an RV park now in South Florida, and the kids are outside with mom. And today happens to be the golf cart Christmas parade. So all the <laughs> all the residents have decorated their golf carts, and they're driving by the RV, and they're blowing their horns and honking their horns at Caleb and Lily. And so I put myself on mute to uh, save y'all from having to listen to. Uh, Golf cart horns. <laughs> That's why I was on mute. Um, okay, great. And like I said, Rusty, I will post uh, after the show uh, a link to the winter edition of Chicken Whisper Magazine as well, where you can read all about mycoplasma uh, from Dr. Patisky out at UC Davis. Um, okay, she has another question. Why, and this is just her, her um, um, interpretation of what she sees out there in, in backyard poultry land, why is CRD in backyard flocks not taken more seriously other than not being a commercial threat. So I think this this person is asking why small flock owners don't take it more seriously? I guess, yeah. Yeah. CRD is not uh, taken more seriously in the backyard arena. Um, Mostly because, as I see it, chicken people are cheap. They don't have mm-hmm. to do any more than they have to mm-hmm. um, as far as managing their birds. And the more happy-go-lucky attitude is, is what they think is more natural, even though it is exposing their board, birds more to mycoplasma, especially mycoplasma, and CRD. But uh, it is not natural for your chickens to have a cold every winter or any time of the year, actually. Um so why aren't people more reactive to this? Um, it's kind of nice to live in a little bubble of of uh, ignorance, <laughs> maybe. Well, um, and that's where a lot of small flock owners wish they could spend most of their time and just do whatever they wanted. But we all know that disease organisms have figured out, you know, how to colonize new hosts and move themselves around. And what worries me, Andy, honestly, honest to Pete, is if anybody ever came down the pike in any state and said, well, how do we get rid of backyarders? Well, we'll just outlaw CRD or mycoplasma. That would be the fastest way to get it done. And 
then anybody who has bad biosecurity is immediately going to be next if they start testing flocks. So I don't know why do people why do people discount the importance of of taking care of their flocks and avoiding CRD? Um, they don't want to do the right. work. I've got. Um, I'll add to that because. I know that you and, and many people at your level, and, and Peter Brown, the chicken doctor, comes on a lot of times. They'll they'll routinely um, say, you know, hey, backyarders are, are are cheap. But that and and, I, and I've come across this where it, it is frustrating for me a lot of times over the years to see people. They'll spend two thousand dollars on a fancy coop. They'll spend all this money on toys and treats, and, and even go outside and give their chickens fresh oatmeal and blueberries every morning and go to that time in trouble. But when asked to buy a twenty five dollar bottle of medication. They balk at that, no pun intended. Oh, I can't afford that. But you have a $2,000 coop. And, and I kind of associate it, like, kind of like you explained, is that it's just not fun. They, they don't mind spending money on the fun stuff like a fancy coop to match their house or treats or swings or toys or, you know, all this stuff. And these might be the they same can, people who make mistakes with dogs and cats, too. Yeah, that, that's true. So, but, but then it's like, you you know, you need, I have a sick chicken. What do I do? And they go to the blog and say, oh, that's easy enough. Um, or, or I'll do it naturally or, you know, something like that. But then it, uh, you ask them to buy a $25 bottle of medication and, and they won't do it. Or they, it's, and, and that's not everybody, believe me. A lot of people will spend uh, big bucks on taking their chickens to the vet the whole nine yards. But uh, we see it day in and day but out. But it's more, more of a concern for the people who aren't listening to your show, Andy, mm-hmm. the people who who don't want to subscribe to anything that might be controlled or regulated in any way. They're, you know, like I like I said to to someone who called me the other day to yell at me <laughs> about having um the uh the um uh, the Ag Week seminar on a Wednesday. Um this person was just venting and sometimes I just have to sit here and listen to it. And they were like, Well that's when Dill's auction always has their their auctions is on Wednesdays. Why would you go ahead and, and do that? Well, number one all right. this person hadn't thought this question or rant all the way through. Dill's is closed that night. <laughs> Number two, it's done that way for umpty bajillion years, and they just didn't know it because they've never come. (laughs) And most of the people who go to Dill's auction are not the kind of people who would want to come and learn how to better their flocks Mm. at all. So, uh, you know, how do I get the people at Dill's auction to to come? Well, I don't know if that will ever happen in 100%. Some people just really like auctions. One one more from um, uh, Roosty, and then we'll move on down the list. Is there a way to test an egg prior to hatching to determine if uh, a hen is no longer shedding a virus from a latent infection like uh, ILT, I think she put down here? Uh, well, you wouldn't it? test the egg, really, because if you test the egg, more than likely that means you're going to have to open it up. And if you're trying to hatch that chick, well, mm-hmm. yeah. you're not really going to be able to hatch it all that well. Um, if you want to test the adult, you can. And the blood test can tell you a lot. Yeah, simple blood test can tell you um, whether or not the animal has cleared an infection as well as, um, you know, you might be able to do a swab of the throat or the vent depending on the virus or bacteria um, if it's a virus, you might be able to pay for a virus isolation test, or if it's bacteria, you might be able to pay for um, 
a molecular test or even a plate test. Actually, you might be able to do molecular tests for both and see if there's any anything there. Okay, perfect. Uh, Linda has a question here. Some of us are using uh, ivermectin pour-on for our flocks, but it is not a rated wormer. Um, what do you it is think not labeled pro- for use in poultry, as far as I'm aware. Okay. What do you think of the product? Do you use it yourself or have any thoughts about dosages? Now, we understand that you may refer to a uh, poultry avian vet for that, but that's her, her question. They're using ivermectin pour-on. It's an off-label use. If you're going to use any product off-label, you need to have a veterinarian's prescription and supervision. Mm-hmm. Now, I will I will uh, go one step further that, yes, that is federal law. Using any type of medication off-label use, that does require veterinarian oversight. You and I both know and our listeners know that that rarely happens ever, even in the backyard poultry industry. But that doesn't change the fact that the law states that if you're going to use a product, off-label use that needs to be under supervision. Technically, you can never eat that bird or its eggs again. Correct. Certainly cannot sell the eggs or, in some cases, barter with them. So, yeah. Um, Pour-on? Can't help you there. Nope. Ivermectin pour-on? I mean, that's... I defer to a veterinarian 100% on that one. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and in that way, if, if like a lot of these, and there's a great question. In fact, I, I will, we'll come to it, and, I, and I'll tell you, and I tried to reach out to the people at uh, Fared, and uh, Fared, I think it's pronounced, uh, abbreviation, I'll get to that in a minute, about egg withdrawal times and things. There's a great question about that, and I did try to get the experts on, no pun intended, for that, and I'll give you the answer here in a few minutes for that listener. Um, let's see. Uh, again, Melissa has another great question here in, in the uh, the forum here on Facebook about science-raised poultry. And uh, the first thing I'm going to say to this for Melissa is in the fall edition, I will post it as well uh, here after the radio show, in the fall issue of Chicken Whisper Magazine, there is a fantastic, a phenomenal article, again, from Dr. Patiski at UC Davis about parasites, internal parasites in poultry. Uh, and, and it answers this very question. She says, a certain number uh, is, is a certain level of worms acceptable and normal in a chicken, or should they be completely worm-free uh, at all times? I do not have it up here now. Um, I could probably pull it up here very quickly, but in, in that article from Dr. Petiski, um, that, that is something that he states. Um, it may not be a horrid thing, if your chickens do have a small load of uh, worms in their gut, and then he goes on to kind of explain why, how they work with the chicken's gut back and even uh, uh, you've explained it like uh, um, uh, Dr. Um, uh, McCray about how they get this bargaining tool going on. You let me live here and hang out here. I won't cause you any problems. You don't cause me any problems. We'll live happily ever after, la, 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 in this gut. And, and, and the chickens seem to be doing fine. It also talks about other type of um, uh, drug resistance if you just choose to worm just for the heck of it or as a preventative type of thing. But it, it is a great article. But since we have you here, uh, Dr. McCray, um, I'm sure her question is, is a certain level of worms acceptable and normal in a chicken, or should they be completely worm-free uh, when, when I get my fecal test? I can certainly manage my birds so that they don't have any worms. I can certainly do that. 
And yep. depending on your comfort level with doing regular testing and any warming, because I know some of your listeners, Andy, they don't want to even go anywhere near their birds with a warmer with a 10-foot pole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know I can certainly manage my birds and maintain my birds in such a manner that they don't have any worms. Now, what level is acceptable? That's going to be on a bird-by-bird basis depending on the bird's health and how you manage them. Um, if you feel that your birds are not doing well and not performing well, then you need to perhaps consider worming them. Um, but there's no real recommendation for, oh, please maintain a 20% worm load in your chickens. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. nobody's going to tell you that. <laughs> right. So your best bet is to maintain them in such a manner that they have a very low quantity of worms and that you check regularly, and if any of your birds die for any reason, get a diagnosis and see if worms um, got away from you or mm-hmm. what caused the illness. Maybe it was confounding of something and worms, and then consider gotcha. the rest of your flock. So that's why I tell people, yes, you may have to pay money that you don't want to have to pay to maintain your pet chickens, especially if somebody dies, because you have a diagnostic lab in your state. No, it may not be a poultry diagnostic lab, but you have a diagnostic lab, and they can give you that kind of feedback. Cool. Uh, Now, Andy, before you get started on the next question, um, I don't have the ability uh, to write into the chat box today, but I can see the answers. And uh, Christmas Chick says, in order to get the people to the small flock seminar, she says, free food. Free food would get the auction people and most others, too. Unfortunately, (laughs) we don't have a food budget, and when we get federal monies, we are not permitted to use them on food for attendees. That is not permitted. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I... um... Uh, yeah, food food can attract a lot of people. That's for sure. Um, so got, got to love it. Well, thank you for that. Uh, paying attention uh, over there in the live chat room that we have going on. Okay, here we got an interesting question. Um, why do so many poultry keepers go uh, down this off-label route when poultry-specific warmers with accurate proven dosages such as piperazine exist? And and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is the 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 ingredient in wazine? Yeah. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I will answer the question best I know how, and then we're going to get your two cents worth, is that okay. uh, my understanding, after six years of doing this and listen to ever, all the experts on the radio show, is people will run to Tracker Supply, they'll buy wazine for nine they they'll come home and they'll treat their chickens, and at the very best case, it's going to treat roundworm. When there may be five different types of common worms your chickens may actually have, and you think, hey, I'm worming my chickens. They're going to be great. They're going to be healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm eliminating all these worms. And you use wazine, and it's really only treating one worm, uh, at least very well, and that would be the um, uh, roundworm. And then number two is, again, we always talk about this. We just did. If you look at the back of the label, it says not for laying hens. If you call the makers of wazine and say, what's the withdrawal time for using wazine in my flock? Meat birds, yes, two weeks. Layers, it doesn't exist. They will tell you never eat an egg from that bird again because they don't want to take the risk because the research has never been done for layers to get a true egg withdrawal period. 
So that's my two cents worth based on uh, using Wazine, and that's what I've gathered from listening to the show all the years. What say you, Doc? And so the question is, why do people use off-label wormers? Well, because they're making the same mistake that the goat people made umpty bajillion years ago. And we're we're walking and waltzing ourselves very, very much so, perhaps towards the same fate as goat producers, where no wormers work at all, because we don't have the research and the science uh, to do it right now. Worming isn't a one-shot deal. It's a give them a wormer and then monitor, just like you would with any other animal. If you gave them a, a wormer. Unless the research has been done, um, you have to monitor afterwards to see the effectiveness. And if you're not doing this by a veterinarian's prescription, when they do the monitoring, that's what you're paying them for, then why do people do this? Um, you know, they, they want the shortcut. They don't know any better. They want the quick answer, quick solution. Oh, this will take care of it. You don't have to worry about it again. Well, you know, as in, maybe there aren't as many extension people in your state, county, city, wherever you're located, to educate these people on what they're really doing to their flocks and what some of the realities are. I'm thinking they may want to worm once with a more broad-spectrum wormer like Valbazin. That's the next question we have coming up here, and uh, that's going to uh, one-time shot, maybe kill more than just the one type of worm that, that the Wazin might. So that may be why they may be using Valbazin. Um, and, and I'll get to the question, but it's um, talking about egg withdrawal and things like that. But um, regarding the egg withdrawal period, and I posted on the, the science-based site before about uh, – uh, Farid, it's the federal animal, um, re- federal animal, animal, federal, see, animal drug resistance database. <laughs> there we go. Say that ten times fast. And um, there, there again, I keep referring back to it. There's a great article <laughs> in the winter issue from these great folks that run that data bank uh, about um, drug resistance in eggs, um, based on. The medication that you're going to use, whether it be lay, uh, officially labeled for the poultry uh, or not. And so um, that's my two cents. I think they may be trying to get a more broad spectrum warmer, even if it's off-label use. And that's the next question here. Um, opinions on Valbazin as a poultry warmer and also Denigard as an um, MG treatment, as it is Denigard? used apparently in, in the U.K. Yeah, Denigard. Spell that for me. D-E-N-A-G-A-R-D, as she has it here, D-E-N-A. I, I'm not familiar with that one at all, so I'm not going to be okay. able to answer that one. Those okay. are questions for veterinarians. Okay. And uh, And if people are not willing to approach a veterinarian to have this done work correctly, then they're really doing their birds a disservice. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, Melissa, and that's the qu- her question is why do some medications have an egg withdrawal period and others do not? Well, what is the time period based on and what are the dangers of eating the eggs anyway and disregarding the withholding time? Uh, Melissa, this uh, is the question. Yeah, I, um, I actually contacted um, the doctor who, uh, who wrote the article in the magazine and who is a, the regional director um, from the University of Kentucky of that um, 
federal database to see if I could get her on today to answer, Melissa, your specific question because she is the expert in that. And I did get an email from her shortly after I reached out to her. She is currently in South Africa on vacation oh. <laughs> enjoying, oh, no. her, enjoy, enjoying her holidays. So she said I could probably do Skype. She's such a great, wonderful lady and always wanting to get the, the right information out. She's so awesome. But I was like, nope, if you're in South Africa on vacation, enjoy it. <laughs> Don't worry yeah. about calling in. I'll refer them to the article that you wrote uh, in the winter issue. So we, we've got it. No problem there. Um, so what was the question again? I'll I'll give my two cents, but people can't why do refer some to me- the... Sure. Why do some medications have an egg withdrawal time and others don't? And uh, how Let's do answer they... that one first, Andy. Okay, sure. Okay. The reason why sometimes they list withdrawal periods for meat and not eggs is because... Mm-hmm. They did the research on the meat. They didn't do the research on the eggs. Why would they choose to not do the research on eggs? Because that's not their client base. Now, people are thinking at this point, well, there's way more people out there with small flocks. How could you possibly say that? Well, when these companies create these products, they're looking at where they can make the most money at. And trust me, There may be a lot more small flock owners out there, but they're also selling this to commercial people. And um, when you have egg layers in commercial conditions, they're in cages, and that separates them from their feces. And oftentimes you break that fecal-oral cycle. So there's an industry that uh, could be a big buyer but doesn't necessarily need that product. So why do the research on eggs? So if one of you small flock owners out there wants to foot the bill for that research, contact the company, and they'll give you a quote. And we'll see if you can, if you can afford it, go ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, what was the cool. second part of your question? Uh, I'm answering a question here on there. Um, let's see. The second one is, uh, how is that time, or what is that time period? What is the egg withdrawal period based on how do they come okay. up with that, that timing? Well, what they'll do is they will have a series of research studies where they will give birds a known quantity and determine its effectiveness on removing worms, but then they'll also test the eggs for a long period afterwards. And they're doing this with lots of birds and multiple, multiple, multiple pens and multiple times of the year to see if season has any effect or the age of the hens has any effect or um, what might affect uh, what time they give as to when eggs can be eaten again. There are a lot of factors to consider and control for in a research study. So what they're going to do is they're going to test the effectiveness on the birds on removing worms and they're they're also going to test the eggs to see if in those eggs, if they can detect the wormer in any trace amounts. Because the concern is person might get sick if they consume an egg that contains any measurable quantities of that wormer. Or the antibiotic, and maybe they have a high sensitivity antibiotic to or, or something worm. like that. Right. Um, and, and so that's why a lot of people say when, when on these blogs and forums, oh, I eat my eggs. Well, you know, it's... It, it, you may not care. You, you may you may choose to. How many people? You, know, you may you know, 
drink the, the stuff for Pete's sake, and you say, oh, I've never, I've never, I've never had a problem. I've licked it, licked it off my finger. Well, Andy, don't tell is, people to do that. <laughs> no, I'm not telling people to do that. I'm saying other people out there on the on the blogs and forums, you'll always hear that. I've kept it. I never had a problem with it. I've never had a problem. I've I've never had salmonella, or my, I I don't wash my eggs. I don't refrigerate my eggs. I've never had a problem. Right? And you know, how I mean, does heck, that you, make you, you may, an expert on something? <laughs> <laughs> you you may. That's what I was saying. You may turn the bottle up and drink it. But the problem comes to play when you give away or sell your eggs. If you make your own self sick, you're the only one to blame, yeah. yourself. You are you make totally else allowed sick. to, uh, to uh, <laughs> off yourself by doing crazy things with your chicken's medications. But if, you once go. you do it to somebody else, there are laws involved. Goodbye house, goodbye car, goodbye 401k, hello court costs. <laughs> exactly. That, that we is live in a litigious society. To go, <laughs> not advocating to go drink warmer, but I can tell you there's a lot of people that post that I've never gotten sick from doing that, and I eat them when I'm actually warming them. Okay, good. Yeah, I just, don't you just love it when people are like, I've never had a problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not a helpful response. We, we, we use that <laughs> on this radio show a lot when, you know, uh, Mary for the last nine years, has run in front of the 9 a.m. bus on her way to work. She's never been hit. Today, <laughs> she slipped on a pebble, and she is dead. Oh, but yesterday, she could say, I've run in front of the bus for nine years, and I've never had a problem. Yeah. <laughs> what do oh. you say, Dr. McCray? Tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is another day. Absolutely. Okay, let's, let's see what we have here. Uh, this is good. You can probably lead Melissa in the right direction here. Where can we find all the studies that show the level of certain diseases like MG and surveys of backyard flocks? I have heard one referenced in California, but I can't find it. I found one in Maryland that found a 3 to 13% rate of MG. Uh, I'm looking for information to prove or disprove the myth that 95% of all backyard flocks have MG. Um, I don't know. I haven't actually done that literature review. Um, The study in Maryland, I might actually know what you are referring to. Um, What they'll do is they will go out and sample flocks, small flocks Mm -hmm. in the state. And, um, you know, they'll determine, oh, my goodness, my phone is blowing up. (laughs) They will... um, They will sample small flocks and determine, you know, how many of those flocks or how many birds in a flock were positive. And and depending on the organism that they're sampling for, it might be a blood test, it might be a fecal sample, it might be a throat swab, and it changes based on the organism that you're hunting for. Um, So where are these research studies? Um, Well... Depends on whether they're published in Avian Diseases or British Poultry Science or Poultry Science Journal, Journal of Applied Poultry Research. There's poultry journals out there that you can seek information from. Okay. Um, I've got a question here that was posted actually live during the show here. Let me scroll down for it. Um, uh, Kat says she is enjoying the broadcast right now, and she's hoping the good doc mentions something about the um, highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak currently uh, infecting commercial flocks in Canada. And just this week from USDA APHIS, uh, the report that um, 
the uh, um, avian influenza has also been found in some wild birds up in Washington State. Um, and wanted to know if you had any uh, suggestions, opinions on that. Um, uh, panic, no panic, just keep an eye out. Uh, the people who are officially studying this are, are doing it on a regular basis all the time. And, you know, it's, uh, and, you know what, what does this mean? For, I guess what does this mean for us that have backyard poultry, show poultry? Maybe we're in Washington State. Maybe we're up there in, in that part of the country where the migratory birds are flying, uh, you know, and things like that. Because, it's, it's, again, it's it's a, flooding a, a lot of the uh, commercial flocks right now in Canada, but now we've seen it in wild birds in uh, Washington State, and it's got folks uh, just a little concerned. Like, what what does, do I need to be worried, or does that concern me at all? Do I just need to sit back and keep doing <laughs> what I'm doing and, and, and you know, just, just keep an eye out? Okay. Well, as far as the wild birds in Washington State, what we have done since um, – since we've had a, a strain of avian influenza that has gotten a little bit aggressive, which is the Asian strain, <coughs> the highly pathogenic strain, is we've done a lot of testing in wild bird populations, whether that's migratory waterfowl or migratory birds of any sort. We do periodically test birds, um, take samples of birds, whether they're live or, or hunters, um, birds that we swab. And that's a lot of times how we detect whether or not birds are carrying the organism. Um, and we know that in waterfowl, eons and eons ago, avian influenza made a deal with the bird, and it said, hey, carry me around the world and I won't kill you. And ducks and waterfowl said, cool deal. Um, and so we, we do test along the main flyways, and there's a Pacific flyway, um, which is where those Washington birds were, were picked up from. And then we have a kind of a middle-of-the-country flyway. Um, if people are at all familiar with the um, the cranes that come down from, from points north into, like, say, um, Nebraska, that's one of the flyways. And then there's an eastern flyway. And so we test along those flyways for birds that may be carrying organisms into, you know, particular areas. Um, as far as the outbreak in Canada, that is going to be the main concern of um, the Canadian uh, poultry industry and also their um, their version of what you would call USDA. And they're going to be monitoring around the infected farms as well as um, you know within a, a certain mile perimeter of those farms and updating people on movements as needed. Um, I'm I'm sure some of your listeners, Andy, are indeed Canadians, and um, if they are part of any sort of registry program or part of a club up there, they hopefully are getting some, some feedback. This is the time when you implement your most biosecure program. And if you are in the Washington State, you know, you might want to step it up. You might want to step up your biosecurity program because you know that if somebody slips up, you might be next. And so if you don't consider biosecurity to be um, top on your list, I'd say for this winter it's going to be on the top of your list and you're going to have to take it seriously because I know your listeners absolutely dearly love their birds and don't want to do anything that would harm their flock. So if you are in that area, if you are in that region, that's being affected, 
then go ahead and implement your your biosecurity plans. Your your most most tight biosecurity plan. Got it. All righty. Thank you so uh, so much for that uh, answer. Um, hey, we're going to take a commercial break uh, right now, and what we're going to do is we've got several more questions that were posted today on our Facebook page on the Chicken Whisperer side. I think I've covered all the ones on the uh, science-based poultry and livestock keeping page. Wanted to do that because we have a lot of them tuning in today, and we do appreciate it. Uh, but we're going to go to a short commercial break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue with some of the uh, questions on our Chicken Whisperer page. So we're talking with uh, poultry scientist and professor Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D., uh, answering questions from our listeners today. So stay with us. There will be a lot more to come right back after the short break. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Established in 1957, GQF has become the name to trust when it comes to quality products and superior customer service. GQF offers a wide range of poultry products, including incubators, brooders, feeders, waters, and much, much more. Give them a call at 912-236-0651 or visit them online at gqfradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Pictures of chickens on aprons are common across America, but picture a chicken wearing an apron and you'll probably get a good chuckle. Laugh if you must, but nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster and may even provide protection from an unexpected hawk attack. Hen Savers come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and standard sized hens and roosters. Colors include camo, denim, navy, brown, khaki or black, and soon pink. Crazy K Farm is expanding its already colorful hen saver collection to include the color pink. A portion of their sales will be donated to organizations that fund breast cancer research and awareness. Order your hen saver aprons today at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com.
Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All right, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. We're talking today with poultry scientist and professor Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D. She's been joining us uh, probably at least uh, three, maybe four years now on the second and fourth Thursday of every single month. And uh, we do appreciate that. And we're doing a small flock Q&A today. Let's see. Let me get over here to my Facebook page and I'll just... Andy, can I can yes. I go back to the previous um, question about AI? Um, yes. Just a, a little bit of clarification. Several years ago, there was avian influenza in the Fraser Valley. It's back. Why does anybody care? Dr. McCray, it's not in the United States. Why do we even care? Well, if you look on a map looking at the Fraser Valley, British Columbia, it's a matter of miles from the U.S. border above um, above uh, Washington State along the coast. And as such, it is um, definitely one of those areas that um, it's just a matter of the wrong person driving over the border and get, coming in contact with a commercial situation on our side of the border, then we have it. Um, And it's a little surprising. Those two towns are right on the border. So I I believe they said it was something like 10 premises or nine premises that are infected at this point, but they've been testing in the area. I know I don't know how many of your listeners, Andy, are in the Seattle area, but I know that there is a very big backyard poultry movement in the Seattle area. Uh And um, guess what? You are a little close for comfort, and if you were to come in contact with any of those birds or even a vehicle that passed through the area and, and had something on its tires, I mean, that's why I want you to pay attention to your biosecurity plan. Um, they do list on the Canadian Food Inspection Agency where they currently stand with regard to um, statements on what they found, what they have discovered, and it's a European strain of highly pathogenic avian influenza. Avian influenza comes in low pathogenic and high pathogenic and Although we don't excuse either kind in the United States, highly pathogenic can be quite devastating on the birds. Um, um, You might be able to see birds that are fine one day but have problems the next. And nobody wants their birds to do that. So um, depending depending on what you can do, um, put a foot bath together. Put your birds inside. It might not be appropriate to let them wander around, especially if wild birds are carrying the organism. If you can, um, 
you know, keep your birds under a a coop that has a, a covered room so that you don't have wild bird feces that fall down into any area where the birds can come in contact with them. Um, take a look at uh, biosecurity handouts put out by the organization you work with, Andy, the USDA. But also, if you're going to look at biosecurity materials, stick with science-based information provided by Cooperative Extension Services at universities. And uh, there's also an e-extension website. I would copy and paste it, Andy, right into the um, window there, but I'm having difficulty with um, getting okay. Blog Talk to work with me today. Okay. But if you type in www.extension.org slash poultry, then you should be able to make it to our e-extension site where we have lots of fact sheets. So... Um, just to emphasize the need for people to really pay attention, and even if you're in an urban setting, pay attention to your biosecurity. Your birds deserve it. We all know how much cool. they ca- your your listeners care about their birds. Yep. And we're going to wrap it up with uh, this one. Monica wants to know, and then I'll uh, wrap up our show, what are some of the best remedies for vent gleat? I have two hens that I, that have it. Uh, I give them probiotic pills, apple cider vinegar, and molasses water, and yogurt, but they still have it for over a year. Ooh. Help, I, I want fluffy butt hens again. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, well, the best person about- to help you with that might be might be um, Peter Brown, um, since okay. he answers yep. a lot of those questions. But then again, sure. it might be time to get a diagnosis and find out what's really causing this. Mm-hmm. Take a fresh sample to a veterinarian, pay for the vet diagnosis, and see if you can't find out what organism is actually causing this problem um, and get a treatment. Once you get a diagnosis, you can get a treatment. Very good. That sounds like a plan. And Peter Brown may be joining us again this coming Monday. Um, we have to look at our schedules and see if we can do that. I know it's Christmas week, but it is Monday, and Christmas is on Thursday, so we may have him back on this coming Monday and uh, may do another Q&A with him. So, well, that's going to wrap up another show of Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Uh, Dr. McRae, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, Dr. McRae joins us on uh, the second and fourth no, the first and third. I'm sorry, the first and third Thursday of every single month has for several years now. And tell everybody, because a lot of our listeners are on Facebook, um, about the um, uh, your Facebook page. Uh, yes, I do have a Facebook page, which is the Center for Small Flock Research and Innovation, where I post a question every day. It's a trivia question. comes straight yeah. out of the um, 4-H Avian Bull Manual. And so I put the question on one day, and I answer it the next day. But I'd like to challenge your listeners to give a shot at the question. I know lots of your listeners have copies of the 4-H Avian Bull Manual. It's out there, folks. Give it a shot. And um, as events become available, I do post those upcoming events on the same Facebook page. Gotcha. Very good. And tell us our Facebook page name again. Center for Small Flock Research and Innovation. Awesome. Got to love it. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, um, I'll look at the calendar, but I think this is your last show of the year. We'll look forward to you having yep. you back in 2015. You take it easy, Andy.
You too. Thank you so much for all your help and uh, all your advice. That's going to wrap up another show of Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Merry Thank Christmas. You Yep, Merry Christmas to you, too. And um, But we will be back um, possibly Monday with Peter Brown. And uh, we thank you very much for tuning in. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Chicken Whisperer. God bless everybody.